morning. Please take out your copy of the scriptures, turn to Luke chapter 9. We continue in our series in the Gospel of Luke, and we come to this morning what is probably the best-known miracle from the life of Christ, the feeding of the 5,000. It's a story that I'd imagine most of you here are familiar with. If you've been in the church for a long time, you definitely know it. And uh, even if you're relatively new and you only know a few of Jesus' miracles, this is probably one of the ones that you do know. And it makes sense that it's so well known. It is, as far as we have recorded, his largest scale miracle. Like he healed individuals and he cured lepers and invalids. Uh, He raised the dead. Those are all magnificent displays of his power. But in terms of just the sheer number of people who were directly involved in one miracle, this is the largest scale miracle that we have recorded. It is the feeding of the 5,000. And that's 5,000 men plus women and children who would have been there. And not only is it his largest scale miracle, it's also the only miracle... Uh, not including his resurrection. We can kind of put that in a different category. It's the only miracle that's recorded for us in all four Gospels. Remember that we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different accounts of the life of Christ, uh, all written by men who are carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Each Gospel writer is writing to a different audience from a different perspective uh, with slightly different purposes, perhaps, Uh, So the variety of miracles and stories and parables recorded across the four Gospels shouldn't surprise us, but it's this miracle, right? Of all his earthly miracles that he did, uh, it's this miracle and only this miracle that the Holy Spirit saw fit to be recorded in all four accounts. So it makes sense that this story should be so well known, But we always need to be careful when we come to a text like this that we're mostly familiar with, lest we harden our hearts and in our pride we not hear what God is saying to us through this text. The scriptures are so deep and Jesus is so infinitely glorious that there's never a scenario when his people can't benefit anew from even the most well-known passages. And so what I want to do is I just want to start by praying, asking the Lord that he would soften our hearts so that we might eagerly receive his word from this text this morning. Father, you are so kind and gracious to reveal yourself to us in your word, that we might see you as a glorious God who is worthy of worship. Father, do not let our familiarity with this passage obscure your glory. We ask that you would soften our hearts this morning, that we would be captivated and convicted and awestruck afresh by the glorious truth that the one powerful enough to feed a multitude would also die for our sin to make us your children. Let us taste a new this morning, the glories of your gospel. 
Father, we pray also for, this, for those in this room who do not yet know you. Pray that the Holy Spirit would work the miracle of regeneration in their hearts. That they would be born again to eternal life, even this very day. We pray in particular for the children in the room that as familiar as they have been from childhood with the sacred scriptures and even this story in particular, that they would truly see the glory of Jesus for the first time and so be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as usual, let's start by just reading the text. This is the word of God. This is how God speaks to his people. And so let us then in faith listen. Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, They followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. There were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples who sat before the crowd And they all ate and were satisfied. What was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. So here's how I want us to go through this passage this morning. First, I want to go through the actual story to make sure we all know what happens, the simple facts of the narrative. Then I want us to think about, based on our knowledge and understanding of the facts of the narrative Uh, Four ways in which we should see the feeding of the 5,000. So first, the story itself. But before we even get to the story, Luke gives us a few verses up front that set the context for us. In a story as well known as this one, it's easy for us to lose the context because we often just think about the miracle in isolation. So what's the context? Well, verse 10, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. Remember back to the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 6, Jesus commissions his apostles. He sends them on this short-term mission trip around Galilee. And so the 12, they, they go out, and they, just like Jesus modeled for them, they preach the gospel, and they heal. Well, now, verse 10, they return from this short-term mission trip and basically have this debriefing session with Jesus. We're not given the details, It just says that they told him all that they had done. 
We can just imagine in our mind's eye just how excitedly they would share stories with Jesus about how people would listen intently as they preached the gospel and how the demon-possessed would come to them and they would be able to drive out demons from them and how the sick would come to them and, and they would be able to miraculously heal people who were seemingly hopeless in their physical afflictions. There was the power and the authority given to them by none other than Jesus himself. Surely the apostles were able to do a lot of great kingdom work. But all that ministry, and going from town to town, going from village to village, right, that can be tiring, that can be draining, that can be exhausting. And Jesus knows that well. And so he brings the apostles to this secluded area outside this town called Bethsaida. That would have been on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. In order that they might rest and recharge a little bit. But you know how it is. There's no rest for the weary. The crowds get wind of the fact that Jesus and company are going there. And so it's not long before they too show up. Now suppose that you are one of the apostles. You, you're exhausted from what's just been a really, really busy season of ministry Mark adds this detail that there were so many people there constantly coming and going that the apostles had no leisure even to eat. And so you are completely drained. And you go away with Jesus to this quiet place and you're, you're finally about to rest and finally about to relax a little and enjoy a nice, peaceful meal. Are, are, you, are you serious? How did they even know that we were here? Maybe you'd be a little bit upset. Give us a break. Those of you with young children at home, you can probably relate to this. You finally put the baby down for a nap. Hard, exhausting morning, and the baby's finally asleep, and you think, oh, all right, some peace and quiet. I'm going to go make myself a cup of tea. I'm going to catch up on my reading a little bit. And so you get your little cup of Earl Grey or whatever it is ready, and you sit down on the couch, you kick your feet up, and just as you're about to take that first sip, wah, wah, right from the next room, how do you respond? Or maybe a better question, how should you respond? Well, look at Jesus' response in his situation. Verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them. He welcomes them. Don't you love that? He's not mad that they're coming to him in need. He doesn't just tolerate their presence. He doesn't begrudgingly say, well, fine, if you're going to come all the way out here, might as well. He welcomes them. Mark adds the detail that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He sees the multitudes as uh, this lost, scattered uh, sheepfold, right, in need of his care. And so he welcomes them. He once again pours himself out to them in word and in deed. Friends, I think that is a beautiful picture of the kind of others-oriented, comfort-sacrificing, servant-hearted ministry that Jesus has called us to. Yes, rest is important. Uh, there is no denying that. 
Jesus himself often goes away privately to spend time with his father. But at the same time, can we not, even as Christ did, joyfully welcome providential interruptions to our rest that we might compassionately love and serve others? And so in compassion for the crowds, Jesus is, verse 11, speaking to them of the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. But time's just flying by. The sun's beginning to set. And the disciples bring a legitimate concern to him. It's getting dark. The people haven't eaten all day. And we're here in this secluded area in the countryside. And so they say, verse 12, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Now look at Jesus' response. You give them something to eat. The disciples, give them something to eat. What do you mean? Uh, They're just, they're flabbergasted. Don't you see how many people are here? There's 5,000 men. Matthew tells us that in addition to the 5,000 men, there were also women and children there. So we might be looking at upwards of 10, 20,000 people. And so the disciples, they put their heads together. They start thinking about what to do. Maybe someone in the crowd has food. Well, John tells us that a, a boy volunteers five loaves and two fish, but it doesn't really seem like anybody else has got anything. So we've got a couple thousand people. We've got five loaves and two fish. And when it says loaves, don't picture like the the giant sourdoughs that we have back there. Uh, These would have been much smaller, like little barley crackers. And fish, it's not like, oh, this is great. He happens to have a 1,000-pound bluefin tuna with him in his backpack. We'll just all share this. No, this is like little sardines, right? Little, little, little fish that you might eat with those, with those crackers. This is probably the dinner that this boy's mother packed for him that morning. And so, yeah, we've got five loaves and we've got two fish, but we've also got thousands of people. What are, what are they for so many? Okay, so if the crowd's not going to be able to help us on this, well, maybe we can go and buy some food. And so they start doing some back-of-the-envelope math. They start figuring out, okay, if we have this many people and if we've got this much money, uh, John records the Apostle Philip saying 200 denarii worth of bread. So that's about eight months' salary worth of bread. That's a lot of bread. Uh, That would not be enough for each of us to have even a little. And so we don't have that kind of money. And here's the thing, even if we did have that kind of money, it's not like we could just walk over to some supermarket. Nobody's going to have that much food in stock. And so any way the disciples try to slice this, any way they try to look at this, well, this is an impossible situation. Verse 13, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we were to go and buy food for all these people, which we can't. You give them something to eat. Jesus, you are commanding us to do something that is impossible. But is the Lord's hand shortened? And so Jesus has the disciples organize the crowd into groups of about 50 or so. 
And then he takes those five loaves and those two fish that came from that boy earlier. He gives thanks to God. And he starts handing bread and fish to the apostles. And they, in turn, just keep distributing and distributing and distributing all until all the people, again, maybe 10, 20,000 of them, until all the people have had enough to eat. Verse 17 says, they all ate and were satisfied. And then the disciples go and pick up the leftovers. People ate so much they can't eat anymore. There's leftovers and there's 12 baskets full of leftovers. So that's the narrative. It's pretty basic. Most of you were already familiar with that story. Luke chapter 9 verses 10 through 17. But hopefully all of us now have our facts straight about what happened. But you all know this. Reading and understanding biblical narratives, it's got to be more than just the transfer of the facts, right? The understanding of the information. So here's the question I want to think about now. What are we supposed to see in this narrative? What are we supposed to take away from this narrative? Let me give you four ways in which we should see the feeding of the 5,000. Number one, we should see the feeding of the 5,000 as a miracle. It is a miracle. It's a miraculous display of Jesus' power. But you may have noticed that in the narrative, right, you look at the text, there's not really any details given as to how the miracle happens. It just stated so matter-of-factly in verse 16, then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples who sat before the crowd. We're just kind of left to assume that as he's breaking the bread and as he's uh, breaking the fish, he's giving the pieces to the disciples and he is miraculously creating more bread and fish in the process. The Bible is silent on the details, but the fact of the matter is undeniable. Jesus is here performing a miracle of creation. He's performed a similar miracle before. His first miracle, not in the Gospel of Luke, but recorded for us in the Gospel of John. His first miracle was to turn water into wine. But this is different. He's not turning something else into bread and fish. He's basically creating bread and fish out of nothing. Ex nihilo. As in food that previously did not exist, now exists. It's a miracle of creation. But that ought not surprise us, because this is the second person of the Godhead who... All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's the one who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Here it happens to be bread and fish. So the feeding of the 5,000 is a miracle. Now you might think, well, obviously it's a miracle. Tell me something I don't know. But I think this is an important point that we ought to make Because the miraculous narratives in the Bible, like this one, they're constantly under attack by unbelievers. Because if they acknowledge that Jesus really did create bread and fish out of nothing, well, then they'd have to admit that Jesus is God the creator. 
And so in their unwillingness to acknowledge the deity of Christ, right, that Christ is God, liberal Bible scholars have come up with some fascinatingly ridiculous explanations of what happened here. There's the explanation that Jesus and the apostles, well, they had a secret stash of bread and fish, like in a cave somewhere, and they just distribute from that secret stash, and people only think that he's multiplying the bread and the fish. We'll call that the secret Costco theory. You can see right off the bat how ridiculous that is. Or there's the explanation that there really were only five loaves and two fish. And Jesus broke those five loaves and two fish into small, small, small pieces so that everybody in the crowd got just a few crumbs. But the people were satisfied because Jesus cared enough about them to do that. You know what we'll call this theory? We'll call it the crummy theory. Because it's ridiculous. I mean, just think about it. If you were really hungry because you've been out all day, and Bartholomew comes to you and he gives you a couple of crumbs of bread, this is for you. Are you really going to walk away saying, that was awesome. I am satisfied. No. And not only is that ridiculous, it doesn't explain the 12 baskets of leftovers. My favorite bogus explanation, though, is that what really happened here when, uh, when the boy, when he, when he shared his five loaves and his two fish with Jesus, everybody in the crowd starts kind of feeling guilty because, because they had bread and they had fish. They were just kind of hiding it selfishly. And so everybody is convicted. Everybody takes out their bread and their fish and everybody shares so that everybody is satisfied and so the miracle here isn't the, the miracle of multiplying bread and fish. The miracle here is, it's a miracle of the heart. Isn't that sweet? We'll call this the sharing means caring theory. So you can try to come up with all these ridiculous explanations, right? Secret Costco, the crummy theory, the, the sharing means caring theory. These ridiculous attempts to explain away what really happened here or you could just take the word of God at face value. The feeding of the 5,000 is about Jesus in his own power miraculously creating enough bread and enough fish to feed the multitude. If Jesus can do that, the undeniable conclusion that you have to come to is that Jesus is God. And if you think about it, that logic was exactly what Satan was appealing to in the temptation narrative. Since you are the son of God, prove that you are God by doing something that only God can do. Command the stone to become bread. And so first, the feeding of the 5,000 is a miracle. It's a miracle that conclusively proves his deity. Second, the feeding of the 5,000 is a test. It's a test for the apostles. John explicitly says that in his gospel, John chapter 6. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. 
He knew what he was going to do, but he said this to test him. But here's our question. With regards to what is Jesus testing his disciples? Well, you remember what comes right before this narrative, verses 1 through 6. It's one of the joys of preaching through a book sequentially like we do. We just looked at these verses two weeks ago. You remember the apostles are sent out by Jesus to preach the gospel, to perform miracles in his name as his ambassadors. And you'll remember the detailed instructions that he gave them, including the instructions to take no bread and no money. And we talked about the significance of those instructions They were given so that the apostles would learn to trust God for all of their physical needs. So that they would experientially learn what it means that the Lord will provide. Even when they lack bread and money. So did the apostles learn that lesson? To trust that God will provide. Well, in one sense, yes. After all, they just got back from this trip where they took nothing... And they saw firsthand God provide for their every need. Ah, But now here is a test. A test for the apostles to see if that lesson translates from that specific context of lacking bread and money to a different one. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And what happens? The apostles run through every conceivable human solution. They do the math. They run the numbers. They gather what they can. And they come to the conclusion that what Jesus is commanding them to do is absolutely impossible. All the while, the Lord who provides, the one who just taught them the lesson of God's provision for them, is standing right in front of them. It's what the apostles should have done when Jesus tells them, you give them something to eat. It's simply to trust him. To trust that he would not command them to do something that he was not going to accomplish through them. You think about it. Jesus has always given them every resource necessary to do what he commands them to do. And so when he told them to go out earlier in the chapter, go out, cast out demons, heal the sick, those are things that they in and of themselves, in their own power, could never do. He provides them with the power and authority required. And when he told them earlier in the chapter to go on this trip without bread and without money, again, he provided for them so that they lacked nothing. So why would this command, you give them something to eat, why would this command be any different? So as great as things went for them earlier in the chapter, well, here the apostles have a setback of sorts. They they don't do very well on this test. Sure, they might not have known how Jesus was going to supply for them here, but they should have trusted who he is. 
Because he has shown them over and over and over that he is the sovereign God who has the power and authority over all things. In this case, trusting that he could somehow provide for them so that they could indeed give them something to eat. But before we jump on the apostles for their lack of faith, their lack of trust, well, we ought to ask ourselves, how many times has God provided for us abundantly and lavishly and faithfully? But then a new situation arises. A new test presents itself. A new need comes up. And we just plunge into the depths of anxiety and unbelief and distrust. Like God has shown us a million different times how sufficient he is for all things. But then trial one million and one comes up and we act, we completely forget how to act. And so we have to learn over and over and over this one fundamental lesson of what it means to trust the Lord. But friends, that's life as a disciple. And pursuing Jesus earnestly in faith and trust and God graciously giving us tests that reveal to us where we still fall short in our faith and trust in order that, so that we might further grow in our faith and our trust. But that's exactly what happens here with the apostles. Where God uses them failing this test to grow them. We'll get to this more next week. But I think Luke purposely skips over a bunch of material that the other gospels cover in order to juxtapose their confession that's going to come in the next set of verses, you are the Christ of God, to juxtapose that confession with this feeding of the 5,000. As if to point out that it's this failed test that is at least one of the ways in which God reveals to the apostles that Jesus is indeed the Christ. And then stepping back and looking at the bigger picture... Right throughout the Gospels, we see these apostles failing test after test after test. But it's through those failures that God grows them into the men who are going to turn the world upside down through the Gospel. And so in this miracle, we have a test. One in which the apostles fare rather poorly. But at the same time, it's one that God uses to reveal his glory to them. And so there's failure and yet success, right? A setback and yet progress, disappointment and yet glorious joy. And so it is in our lives as God still has much to teach each of us, his servants. But friends, are we listening to what he is trying to teach us? So the feeding of the 5,000 is a miracle, and the feeding of the 5,000 is a test. Third, the feeding of the 5,000 is a fulfillment. Specifically, it's a fulfillment 
of several Old Testament pictures that pointed forward to Jesus. We can think about two in particular. First, we think about God providing manna for the Israelites. You know the story. God uses Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt to bring them to the promised land. But on the way, they're traveling in the wilderness, and the people begin to complain to Moses, we're hungry, they grumble, we've got nothing to eat. And so God gives them bread from heaven, manna. Jesus himself addresses this connection, right, between our miracle here in Luke chapter 9 and Moses and the manna. He makes that connection explicit in John chapter 6, and you can read that this afternoon if you're not familiar with that passage. But second, there's a lesser-known miracle in the Old Testament involving the prophet Elisha. It's in 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings 4.42 a man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in a sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. And he said, well, that sounds awfully familiar. It sounds a lot like Jesus' command. You give them something to eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before 100 men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. They shall eat and have some left. That's exactly what Jesus does here. And so both of these Old Testament narratives, Moses and Elisha, two of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, they're pictures that point forward to what Jesus is doing here in the feeding of the 5,000. But it's not just, hey, would you look at that? Moses and Elisha, they did similar things. It's that Jesus does a much greater thing than either Moses or Elisha. Jesus shows himself to be greater than Moses because... As Jesus points out in John chapter 6, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Moses didn't create anything. Moses wasn't involved at all in that miracle. That was bread from God. But here, it is Jesus himself who creates that bread. And so Jesus shows himself to be greater than Moses. And Jesus shows himself to be greater than Elisha. Because Elisha performs that miracle to feed a hundred men. It's like small potatoes compared to what we've got here. The tens of thousands that Jesus feeds here. It's a whole different scale and magnitude of miracle. So yes, the feeding of the 5,000 is a fulfillment of those pictures. But you know how it is. The reality is always greater than the picture. That's exactly the case here. And so Jesus here shows himself to be greater than two of the greatest prophets of all time, Moses, Elisha. And that brings us back to what we looked at last week. You remember the popular consensus. Who was Jesus? It was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. We talked a lot about the John the Baptist option last week. But think about those last two options. Well, 
He's certainly not Elijah or one of the prophets. He's far greater than Moses and Elijah and Elisha and all of the prophets. But Jesus is no ordinary prophet. He is the prophet. As we're going to see next week, he is the Christ of God. So third, we see the feeding of the 5,000 is a fulfillment. It's one that shows Jesus is far greater than all of the prophets to whom he's being compared. He's the Christ of God. So the feeding of the 5,000 is a miracle. It's a miracle that conclusively shows, proves that Jesus is God. The feeding of the 5,000 is a test. It's one that God uses to grow the apostles. The feeding of the 5,000 is a fulfillment. It's one that shows that Jesus is greater than all the prophets. Last but not least, the feeding of the 5,000 is a foreshadowing. It's one that points to the ultimate reason why Jesus came. If you read John's account, John chapter 6, this is his focus. John, and only John of the four gospel writers, he writes about what happens the next day. The crowds come back to him. Give us this bread always. We want more bread. Do again what you did yesterday. And Jesus turns that into a teaching moment. The well-known bread of life discourse. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's not speaking of physical bread. He's not talking about the bread that you eat. He's talking about spiritual bread. And he tells the crowd exactly what he means in John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. This is not the bread I created. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then verses 57 and 58. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate, not like the manna, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And so Jesus is the bread of life, in the sense that he would give his life, right, his flesh, for his people. Go to the cross, die on behalf of the elect, taking all their sins upon himself, so that anyone who eats of that spiritual bread, by believing in him, anyone who eats of that spiritual bread might have their sins forgiven and live forever with God. The feeding of the 5,000 is a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of his impending death, giving up his flesh, so that sinners can have eternal life. Now that is most clearly and explicitly stated in the Gospel of John. But we can see that connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus' future death for sinners, even in our Gospel of Luke. I want you to look carefully about how Luke, the author, 
how Luke describes Jesus' actions in the feeding of the 5,000. And I want you to pay particularly close attention to the verbs or to the action words. Luke 9, 16. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. So in that verse, Jesus takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks the bread, and he gives it to his disciples. Now look at how the same author, Luke, describes Jesus' actions on a later date, again involving bread and those same disciples. Luke 23, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. Again, Jesus takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks the bread, and then he gives it to his disciples. And what is the context of that verse? This is my body, which is given for you. With the Last Supper. He's talking there to his disciples about his soon upcoming death on their behalf. And so friends, don't miss this. The feeding of the 5,000 is a miracle. Yes, it is a miracle that conclusively proves that Jesus is God. And it's a test, a test that God uses to grow his apostles. It's a fulfillment, one that shows Jesus to be greater than all of the prophets who came before him. But let's not miss that the feeding of the 5,000 is also a foreshadowing. It's one that points us very clearly to the fact That Jesus came ultimately not to do miracles like multiplying bread and multiplying fish. He came not to feed the hungry. He came not to solve all of our earthly problems. He came to be the bread of life. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to give his body for you. So that all who might eat of that spiritual bread in faith might live forever. So let me close by asking, do you believe that? Do you truly believe that? Have you received Jesus as the bread of life, turning from your sin and placing all of your trust in him and him alone? Do you see Jesus as not just one who's going to help you in the trials and tribulations of this life, but as the one who has secured eternal life through his death and resurrection. Do you see Jesus himself as more precious and more glorious and more satisfying than anything, anything that he can give you? Even something as fundamental to life as bread. Let me close by reading these fitting words from Isaiah 55. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me, 
Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Father, we pray that you continue to speak to our hearts through this text even as we close our Bibles and even as we depart from this place, that this word would not depart from our hearts, that the Holy Spirit would do his work through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.